Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and today we're going to be talking about one of the most serious problems uh, that I have seen in Maine in my adult life, and that is the problem of drug abuse, uh, particularly prescription drugs and heroin, which is an absolute epidemic in our state. Just to put it in perspective, we are now losing about 200 people a year to overdoses, and that number has been increasing every year for the past several years. And of course, that's just a fraction of the people who are suffering from addiction, and it's tearing families and uh, lives apart on a on a really uh, significant scale all over our state, rural areas, urban areas, uh, all kinds of people from all kinds of background. Our first guest today is Christopher Poulos, who's a remarkable a young man who is a student at the University of Maine Law School, uh, but he came there through a uh, rather difficult, uh, one would say torturous path that involved uh, addiction, uh, jail, and uh, ending up uh, coming out the other side. Uh, Christopher, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, can you give just thank give you, a just just give a quick uh, synopsis of 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 First, how you got into drugs in the first place, where it took you, and then how you got out. Sure. So alcohol and drugs started for me at a a very young age, Um, even before my teenage years. I um, grew up attracted to whatever I wasn't supposed to do for whatever reason, and that um, led to substance use at at a very early age. Uh, as soon as I found substances, I found I, re- I realized that they were, provided me a way to feel comfortable in my own skin, and it was something that I didn't know how to do. I didn't know how to fit in uh, to be part of the community, part of a team, part of a family, without um, using some kind of alcohol or drugs. I also was prescribed prescription medication early in my teenage years, a variety of different medications, and, and that spiraled into misuse of those medications as well as um, increased use of, of illegal drugs and alcohol as well. Um, that, that downward spiral continued through my teenage years and into my early 20s. I actually worked as a commercial fisherman off the coast of Maine while I was a teenager and while I was still in high school, and we unfortunately lost my stepfather at sea. And that was shortly after a couple other tragic deaths in my family and among friends. And what that did was it really progressed the process of addiction and dependence. Um, my mother didn't know how to deal with me, so I ended up uh, being homeless while I was still in high school and trying to make it to school because I didn't I didn't want to quit. I, at the time, I thought it was a moral weakness that I had. I thought that I, that I was bad. I thought something was wrong. I only later learned that I just wasn't well, because as soon as I did seek help, I found, I found out that immediately any illegal activity I was involved in, any um, really poor decisions I was making, they ceased almost immediately, or immediately, once I, I sought and received help for the untreated addiction. And, and everything I've done since then has been a direct result of my decision to live without any type of mood-altering substances. I made that decision when I was 24 years old. Now, now let, me, and, let me stop you there, because there are people that say, well, you know, why are we spending all this money on treatment? It really doesn't work. And 
young people and people generally fall back into drugs and alcohol. I think you're saying very clearly treatment worked for you. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, formal treatment was part of what I did. I went to eight out, excuse me, I went to outpatient uh, treatment at Mercy Recovery Center, which, as you know, no longer exists, unfortunately, which was in Westbrook and helped people for, for many years. And I um, also got involved with peer-to-peer recovery. I got a group of a network of people who were in recovery and explained to me and showed me the way that they were able to live without alcohol and drugs. And that truly has been the, the foundation of my recovery um, and, and in conjunction with any type of um, formal treatment, counseling, stuff like that. Personally, I didn't, I didn't need any type of medically assisted treatment. Some people do to make that transition. And um, I think each person has a different path to recovery, but, but, but recovery uh, uh, is certainly possible. Uh, it, well, that was going to be my follow-up because I presume you know other people who've taken your path and uh, for whom treatment has has worked. I mean, this is a very, this is a very important question because we're all trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. And I think what you're telling me is that uh, treatment is is important. Absolutely, there. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who are in recovery, um, many of whom remain private about it, some of whom, like myself, have decided that this, this epidemic is, is too great, both involve you know, the, the criminal justice aspect as well as the public health aspect that surrounds addiction is, for me, too great to remain uh, quiet now, about my now, own Now, you, you mentioned criminal justice. You, you fell afoul of the law, right? I certainly did. Um, as a result, and I'm not making an, an excuse by saying as a result, I'm simply saying that if, if not for an untreated addiction, I never would have been involved in any type of illegal activity. Uh, I think it's important for people to understand that I don't think anyone wakes up and says, you know what, I think I want to I destroy my community by distributing drugs or by robbing a, um, a car or something like that. It's it's a long road into addiction, and it, and it can be a long road out as well. So what happened was I, I became hooked first on alcohol, prescription medication, and marijuana, and then it, it transferred into other drugs as well. And I found that the only way I knew how to survive and sustain my um, addiction, my illness, was to uh, sell drugs to support my habit. Eventually, I, I did get caught for that behavior. I, um, I actually was in recovery when the charges came. Um, I happened to, I don't say happened to, I believe this was the, the universe's plan was for me to find recovery before I ended up incarcerated so that I could spread a message of hope and a message of recovery at all the different facilities that I ended up going to. Let me stop you there for a second. In, in the facilities that you were in, and I presume that we're talking about county jails and, and more serious jails, were there a lot of people with addiction, suffering from addiction? Almost everybody. Wow. So this is, this is something we need. What I've seen, Senator, and which I hope everyone in, in Maine and Washington and throughout the country can appreciate, is that there really are two distinct movements. There's the recovery advocacy movement. There's all the people talking about the opioid epidemic. 
Yep. And then there's another group which is fighting for criminal justice policy reform, such as the uh, Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act in the Senate, and then there's an accompanying bill in the House. Um, but for me, because I've experienced this directly and because I work representing indigent juvenile uh, indigent juveniles who are currently facing criminal charges on a daily basis in court in Maine, what I see is that the two issues are intimately connected. We, if we don't address the collateral consequences, such as people not being able to get housing, employment, or education because of criminal convictions, we, we can't really expect those people to stay in recovery. Um, and vice versa, if, if people don't address the, the issues with addiction and mental health, we can't ex- expect them to succeed even if we do but, address some of the issues so, with the so you you had a sentence. How how long were you in in jail? Almost three years. And then three and, years. and then when you got out, did you find that having served that time barred you from various activities? Um, it was very very difficult to do a lot of things. Uh, you know, for for one thing, um, I've, I've been in, in back and forth from from Washington for the last um, several months, really since May, doing different things, different types of work. Um, both with the Obama administration and with the sentencing project last summer. And one of the things that really sticks out on me for an example of this is that um, I'm a sworn officer of the court and a member of the main bar as a student attorney. But And I am a a law student. I've also been able to go through clearance processes to be able to collaborate with the White House on different things. And despite all that, I still have trouble renting an apartment. So I can't get through renter applications, despite the fact that I'm an officer of the court practicing law. How'd you get into law school with a criminal record? So this this was a, a process. And what I would say, it's a process of, of growth, both within me, with the dean of the law school, um, and with a lot of support from the community. One thing I learned early in recovery was to ask for help and take direction. Another thing I made a decision in my own life was not to uh, take no for an answer um, if there was a legal way to try to pursue a yes, not to quit right so, away. So when you're, you're at a moment at the law school and you're talking to the dean, and did he say something like, well, I don't know if we can take you, you have a, you have a criminal record? And, and what did you say? He, so the dean and I had a conversation where um, we met, and I was very nervous. I was very excited to, to speak to him. It took every ounce of my being to get up the nerve to to try to set up this meeting. And I was so nervous. And I told him, you know, um, I'm I'm going to college now. I'm mentoring young people in recovery. I've been in recovery for several years. I'd really like to attend the law school. And he, he said that he wasn't, you know, he was very um, wary, I guess, of the idea. He said that, you know, maybe there were some other professions that would be more suitable for someone with, with my background and that he wasn't sure how the legal community in Maine would receive someone with my background. He was skeptical of the idea of this actually working. So it wasn't that he was against it, but he was, he certainly was um, skeptical and wary of the entire prospect. Um, and what I, 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 I paused then, Senator, and I, I chose my words very carefully because I was stung. This was my dream that I'd been working on, and if we had more time, I'd tell you about the people in prison that did encourage me 
to follow these dreams and the people in recovery that did encourage me to follow my dreams. And so that moment, I was really stung. I was hurt. And I, I thought about the situation and I said, Dean, why didn't the judge give me a life sentence? And he was surprised by my question. And he, he responded that he wasn't exactly sure. It may have had something to do with my background or the, the conduct in question. And so I asked him, you know, I said, why are you giving me one here today? In effect, you, what you were saying is, why are you giving me a life sentence when the judge didn't give me a life sentence? Right. What I was saying, and this has become the basis of much of the work that I do, is that we have a criminal justice system in this country where once you pay your debt to society, you are supposed to be welcomed back into society. And unfortunately, that's not the reality of the current system for many people. Once you have that Once the dean made the decision, though, did he welcome you to the law school? Absolutely. So what happened was I, I left that office, and though discouraged, all that did, Senator, honestly, I could have quit. I, I decided not to. It just it further fueled, flamed the fire that was already burning within me. Um, after that meeting, I, I got my first A. I had never gotten an A before. And um, fortunately, I never earned anything less. And, and uh, just a few weeks ago, you were named Law Student of the Year by a national publication. I, I, you're, you're probably too modest to s- tell people that, but, <laughs> but I will. But I think it's important what you said, that, that uh, if, if, we, if people go in, they serve their time, and they come out, and then they're barred from jobs, barred from appointments, uh, 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 apartments, barred from graduate school or school or whatever, then the chances of them falling back into the drug life are increased. Isn't that right? That's right. And then, and also the, you know, the one thing I'll touch on with the Dean is that eventually he ultimately, he did vote in my favor, like you said. And not only that, he welcomed me um, on my first day with, with extended his hand and said, you are welcome here. You're part of this community now. And what that showed was by my not quitting, by me standing up for myself, I was able to have growth and transformation not only within me, but within him as well. And, and building relationships to build stronger communities has been a big part of all this work. Um, one thing we're really working on now, both in my work in Washington and here in Maine, is, is looking at the stigma that surrounds addiction and the power of language in that and the power of being open. Um, about a year ago, or about a year and a half ago, we had a visit in City Hall. I was doing some work as an appointee for Mayor Brennan, and Director Michael Botticelli came from the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the White House, and he started talking about being a recovering alcoholic and the fact that he'd been arrested, and he did this at the table with everyone there. And at that point, Senator, I was completely private about my past, um, for a lot of reasons. And it just blew my mind that someone could speak openly. And what he said was, you know, no one's going to come and stand up for us unless we also stand up for ourselves. And the stigma can only be removed around these health issues and what they are, are health issues, you know, according to the American Medical Association, at least. And we can only remove the stigma if people see us as part of the community, if we're, we're open about what we've overcome um, and conscious about what we've overcome and raise public awareness. And that's exactly what's happening. And I think that's what's led to 
uh, the work that's going on at, at local, state, and national levels, and probably why we're on this call today. <laughs> well, Christopher, I, I, we could talk all afternoon, and, and your story is, is uh, sobering and also inspiring. And uh, I just want to thank you for sharing it because it's so so much more powerful than statistics and dry stories from senators and congressmen. But it's you're talking about real life and real life in Maine, and what you've done is is amazing. And and uh, I, I just uh, I, I want to thank you and and tell you that uh, there are a lot of folks down here who are uh, trying to turn this uh, ship of addiction around and. Uh, so we can have more stories like yours. Great. And thank you very much, Senator, for all the work you're doing on these issues. Um, we really appreciate it here in Maine and, of course, throughout the country as well. So it's a vital issue. I'm, I'm glad to be here today. Great. Thanks a lot, Christopher, and good luck uh, in your last year of law school. Thank you, Senator. Take care. Welcome back to Inside Maine. Uh, my next guest to talk about this terrible scourge that is running through the entire country, but also in places like New Hampshire and Maine, is uh, New Hampshire Senator Jean Shaheen. She and I uh, introduced a bill uh, last week involving a comprehensive approach to this uh, drug problem, uh, although I think we both have to admit it's uh, really just the beginning. Uh, Jean, talk to me about what you're seeing happening in New Hampshire. Well, as you know, what we've seen in northern New England and in too many states across the country is this epidemic of prescription drugs, opioids, and heroin. People, um, I think I was at a hearing before the Judiciary Committee yesterday, and one of the statistics that was um, presented was that four out of five people who take um, prescription drugs Four out of five of the people who are addicted to heroin started with prescription drugs. And I think we didn't, when we first started prescribing painkillers, people didn't understand the the addiction potential. And what we're seeing now is that people have switched to heroin because it's cheaper and it's easier to get. And in New Hampshire, um, last year we lost more than a person a day. Uh, three times as many people as we lost in traffic accidents to heroin overdoses. And the fact that um, it's now often laced with fentanyl makes it much more deadly. And we've got to do something to address this. And everywhere I've gone in New Hampshire, as I've met with the experts, whether they're from law enforcement or the treatment community or um, the medical community, the answer is the same. We don't have enough resources at the state and local level to do what we need to do. So our bill is to really look at what we have already in um, Washington to provide help to programs from law enforcement, drug courts, to the prescription drug monitoring program, to um, treatment, to community prevention, um, education, and we've tried to, as part of the emergency supplemental bill, to increase resources in those programs to help state and local um, authorities who are trying to deal with this awful scourge. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that was so dramatic yesterday in the testimony was there were a lot of statistics thrown around, but nothing could compare to hearing from families who have struggled with addiction which is a disease, and who have lost loved ones um, because of this horrible disease. And so 
what we've got to do is see more of a response here in Washington to address this. Well, and, and I, I think one of the things that was encouraging, I, I came and sat in on the hearing that where you testified, um, this is one of the most bipartisan issues I've seen since I've been down Absolutely. here. And you're right. That's really encouraging. And it's bipartisan, not just on the committees that are dealing with it, but from the leadership on both sides, both Republican and Democrat. We heard the president talk about it when he was speaking to Congress in the State of the Union. He referenced this. So hopefully that is good news for seeing some action. You know, I'd like to, when I'm talking about our legislation, which is $600 million to to try and help, um, as you point out, it's a multifaceted approach to deal with the issue. But when you compare that to last year, we passed over $5 billion, with a B, um, to try and address Ebola. We only lost one person in the United States to the Ebola outbreak. Um, We passed in 2009 a little over $2 billion to address the swine flu epidemic. And here we're losing 47,000 people in America a year from um, drug overdoses. And we need to do more. And this, I think, is a down payment in what we can do that helps what's working because we know what works. We just need to continue to do that. Yeah, and, and it's got to be all, all aspects. It's got to be law enforcement. It's got to be trying to dry up the supply as much as we can. And that goes all the way back down to Latin America or Asia or wherever the, the heroin is coming from. Um, but it's also the demand. And, and what's really shocking about this is how deep into our, our states, I mean, I don't think of Maine and New Hampshire as places where there are a lot of heroin addicts. And all of a sudden, uh, that's what's happening. And I think you made an important point that it, the, the rise of heroin use tracks the rise of prescription drugs. Absolutely. Um, it is the prescribing of painkillers that have gotten us into the terrible situation that we're in today. You know, um, you talk about our southern border. I had an opportunity to visit our southern border last spring um, because I'm on the appropriations subcommittee that deals with the Department of Homeland Security. And we were down there in Laredo, Texas, actually, and I was watching um, the Customs and Border Patrol, and they had a dog there that was checking for drugs, and he had found something in a pickup truck that he didn't like, um, and they, they told me that often um, people trying to smuggle in drugs hide it behind the gas tank, and so this dog had zeroed in on the gas tank, and they had him pulled over. But as I was talking to the CBP agents, they said, the drugs are coming across our southern border in Mexico, and they're going up the interstates. They're going up 35 to the middle of the country, and they're going up 95 and arriving in New Hampshire and Maine. And as you say, we've got to do more to interdict those drugs and to put those pushers, the bad guys, behind bars. But we also have to recognize that the people who are getting hooked um, are ill, And we need to treat this like a disease. And one of the things that has been effective in New Hampshire and some of our communities in in the Lakes region, for example, um, I was very impressed the Laconia Police Department has a full-time officer whose job is not to put people in jail. His job is to try and liaison to families who have someone who um, is addicted and try and help them get into treatment. 
And they talked about they're finally beginning to see some progress as they're looking at the challenges but, of. But at the very with it. time we're seeing this explosion of of demand for treatment, at least in Maine, we're seeing a, a, a diminution of available uh, available treatment. I mean it. It's uh, it's a mismatch. We've got one line going down and the other line, while the other line is going up, and it's it's uh, that that's we we've got to work on that. Now, some people say, well, treatment doesn't really work. You have a relapse, but this may be one of those things where relapse is part of the treatment, and you've got to go two or three times. Well, that's right, and it's not. I mean, treatment unfortunately is not just one um, one stay in a detox center. Treatment is long term. It's needs we need community supports, and we need to address mental health as part of the treatment. Um, we had a, a doctor come down to speak before a number of senators, again from the Lakes Region Hospital, Dr. Paul Rascott, and he talked about this. He's been treating substance abuse for over 20 years. He said it often goes hand in hand with mental health other mental health issues. And so we've got to recognize that we have to we have to treat them both. And we need to provide those community supports that help people to to revive somebody in an emergency room with Narcan and to put them right back out on the street where they're in the same environment where they don't have any support just invites them to go back to using. And what we need to do is to have a place where we can um, provide help for that person who has overdosed so they can get the treatment that they need. Right. Well, we, the other piece, uh, I uh, just before talking with you, I was talking with a, a remarkable young guy from Maine named Christopher Poulos who went through addiction, uh, uh, criminal activity to support the addiction, ended up in jail, got out, and now he's in law school. And one of the, one of the points he made is that there's a kind of really cruel catch-22 here. Once you have a record, it becomes very hard to get a job, get an apartment. You know, he, he got cleared to work in, the, in Washington, but he couldn't get an apartment uh, because he had to check that box. Do so you have a, a felony conviction? And, and that sort of pushes these folks who've done everything to get clean back into the, to the life. I mean, the, the, the whole criminal justice reform is part of this as well. Um, it is absolutely. You know, one of the things that we've been working on with sexual assault or trafficking survivors is trying to address that very issue with the criminal justice system so that they can, those people who um, are back, have survived, can can get those offenses taken off of their record. And so I don't know if if that's where we need to go, but we need to look at those impacts that keep people who are in recovery from getting jobs, um, getting out into the community, finding places to live, uh, resuming a productive life. Now, let's talk practical politics here for a minute. Last night we heard both Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell agree that this is a really serious problem and we need to do something about it right away, which, uh, frankly, I haven't heard in the last three years. what are the prospects? Do you think there's going to be some kind of comprehensive package that we're going to be able to work out on a bipartisan basis? Boy, I hope so. When the I thought it was also impressive at the Judiciary Committee yesterday to hear people on both sides of the aisle talk about how how big of a problem this is in their states and how we needed to do something to address it. And, and there are a number of pieces of legislation in addition to our bill is really an emergency supplemental appropriation to address this. There is a comprehensive 
bill to look at a range of programs, changes to make them more effective um, that would authorize additional programs. So we really need a combination approach. We need to look at the whole range of things that have to be done because sadly there isn't a silver bullet solution. We've got to look at what works and try and support those things. You know, think about how much we spend to keep somebody in prison now. It's tens of thousands of dollars. Oh, it's it's a it's. I can tell you, it's about eighty thousand dollars a year. It's more it's more expensive to send than someone Harvard. to prison than yeah. to send them to Harvard. Um, and think about if we could put even half of those dollars into treatment, how many people we could affect positively who would then be able to go on with their lives, be productive, um, and they'd be so taxpayers we, instead of absolutely. So we've got to we've got to change the incentives, and as you say, it's really encouraging that there seems to be bipartisan support to do that. And and the other thing that has struck me in New Hampshire, I I'm not sure what you've seen in Maine, but um, not only is our bipartisan congressional delegation working together on this, but the legislature, the Republican legislature, and the Democratic governor are working together on it. We're working with our local communities. Law enforcement is working with the treatment community. Um, so it's really um, a broad um, cooperative effort that people have come together and said, we can s- address this if we all work together. S- same thing's happening in Maine. Last last week, a, a legislature passed a, a bill uh, unanimously, I believe, which practically never happens, and the governor signed it. And uh, so uh, hopefully that kind of spirit will uh, continue in all the states because that's the only way we're going to be able to deal with this. Absolutely. Jean, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and for the work you're doing on this issue. Well, thank you. It's great to be working together, and hopefully we're going to get this done. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for joining us on Inside Maine. See you next month.